welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Karen Gillan and Stephanie Hans have joined forces to create a dark fantasy about a group of adults in their 40s who must face the horror they barely survived as teen role game players in 1991. Today on the show, writer Karen Gillan of Wicked and the Divine, Star Wars, and Stephanie Hans, artist on Journey into Mystery, deconstruct their experience with RPGs, role-playing games, and explain why this story, entitled Die, being published through Image Comics on December 5th, is not just a trip down memory lane. Why does Karen begin Die in 1991? What was so pivotal about that year to him? RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons still thrive in a world filled with elaborate interactive video games and personal device gaming apps. What is the reason for RPGs' success among new and longtime players? Karen and Stephanie share their thoughts. Karen also talks about his writing Star Wars for Marvel Comics and what we can expect from his take on Peter Cannon from Dynamite Entertainment coming early next year. Both guests answer my fun questions, including Stephanie's beverage of choice that leaves her free of hangovers and how she's taking control of her birthday celebration this year. Creator Talks is brought to you by The Comic Book Shop on Marsh Road in Wilmington, Delaware. All are welcome, just be nice. And they have a Black Friday sale coming up this weekend. More on that later. But now let's get to my interview with Karen Gillen and Stephanie Hans on Die, coming out December 5th. Here now on Creator Talks. And welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks for having us. And Stephanie, welcome. Hello. It's getting towards the end of the year. I heard Christmas music on the radio. It's nuts. I cannot get into it. It is cold enough here where I am for a change. Usually it's not, but I just can't. But I get things done at the end of the year. I clean out my closets. I start getting my records together financially, you know, putting them in shoeboxes and things like that and store those things. Are there things that you do at the end of the year as a matter of course? One of my major weird sort of I'm quite into rituals. I mean, if you've read Wick, Dave, I remember into the, the concept of circles and occasionally I get too much into the concept of rituals. And one of the things I've done for a very long time, like since 2003, is do a kind of a, a list of my tracks of the year. And it's basically I go, uh, I select the top 40 records I've liked this year and write a bit about each one of them. And I've kind of loosened it off in a bit. I've, I've ended up forgiving myself for being, you know, no longer as necessarily obsessed as music as I once was. But I still basically pull together a bunch of stuff I've really liked and kind of write about it. Because it's a nice way for me to sort of, you know, look at the year. Because when I'm writing about music, I'm really writing it out why I cared about that song. And why I cared about the song is normally about, you know, something that was happening to me. So it's fun. Wow, that's a challenge because I couldn't do a top 40 comics that would describe i read so much <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i do keep a I keep a notepad as in, so i kind of i keep a skype list stuff so when I'm at the end of the year i have a list of stuff i actually liked <laughs> which helps stephanie what do you do usually at the end of the year i head up to the, um, the north of france where my parents live because i'm a christmas baby and so they insist on me spending time with them at that moment but uh usually the other thing I would call uh, um, like an habit, uh, quite a recent habit, is uh, I've been doing some articles about my life as an illustrator, uh, comic book illustrator. And I do a recap of the year, three couple of years usually. And next year is going to be my 10th year as an American comic book artist. So I think it's time to make a proper recap of all this because it's been it's been something. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I survived it. <laughs> 
that's an accomplishment in and of itself. I noticed on your Twitter, you posted some pictures. There was this, I don't know what it was, a festival and a play in the streets with these giant creatures. What was going on? That was really cool looking. So basically in France, we have a company. We have several companies now. Uh, the oldest one, I think, is called uh, Royal Deluxe. Uh, and this one is a different one. It's called La Machine. And they do those giant happening in cities that last several days. In this one, there was the, it was kind of an opera with a giant minotaur and a giant uh, spider. And they were looking for each other. And the minotaur was looking for wings. Uh, I think it was linked to Didalus. I don't know how is it called in English, but that was really something. It was everywhere in the city and we were following it. And, you know, it was very funny because we were actually running from one. If you know the city in France, like the city, the streets are very narrow. So you run from one street to the other to always try to be in front of the minotaur. It was actually funny. That was amazing looking. Yeah, it was. It was, and it was really magic because there was... All the, you know, even the musicians, they were part of the play. They were in those giant, um, some kind of cranes. It was really magical, very inspiring. Before we get into the book, Die, I want to talk a bit about gaming. Now, I am no expert. I don't really know much at all about role-playing games, so I'm going to be honest about that up front. But I know, Karen, for you, that writing Die has been a bit of an emotional homecoming. Uh, you're left <laughs> part of your youth with RPGs, and now you're returning to it with Die. And we're going to get to Die and what I went into it in a bit. But first, Die begins in 1991. That's when the story opens up. What do you remember, each of you, about the year that was 1991? The biggest moments where you're reading comics and which ones? Do you want to go first, Stephanie? I'll have a quick think. <laughs> or, or, or I can dive in. Do remember exactly how old uh, I was or how young I was in 1990. <laughs> that was a long time ago. I was in France and I was in a small village. So I'm pretty sure my youth was not as fancy as Karen's. Uh, it was not a fancy place at all. But uh, still, you know, was listening to some Madonna. I was stealing the comic books of my father. He had a print library or pulp books that I found. And I got somewhere around that time, I guess, and found a new love for uh, Stephen King. That was, that was actually funny. I don't know why he was hiding them. Actually, that reminds me of like, one of my friends uh, was going through one of his... Uh, this, of course, speaks so much to the time. This is the Satanic Panic sort of period. Uh, but a friend of mine had a copy of It. And It, of course, is, a, shall we say, a reference on... You know, not a reference on Die, an influence on Die. Uh, in a, you know, the fundamental mode of it, as opposed to the recent movie. It basically is primarily about a group of older people who are being dragged back to this thing that happened to them as kids. So that book, I borrowed off a friend and he asked for it, you know, he obviously wanted it back because it was, you know, it's his book. And I said, good, sure, like, I'm just finishing it off. Um, and he said, yeah, I'm going to burn it. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, because he was going for one of his actually slightly kind of, you know, the kind of the satanic panic, very kind of quite, Christ you know, absolutely no problems, but the kind of book burning Christian kind of period. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not giving it you back. <laughs> it's like, I'm, you know, I'm not going to give you something just to burn it. Uh, so that was kind of like, a mo you know, he let it lie. Uh, but that was definitely time I stole a book of a friend to save it from the fires. Anyway, that's 1991. That must have been 91, actually, now I think about it. I was 16. Uh, I was growing up in a Midlands town and it wasn't like rural, like Stephanie's was, but it's kind of mediocre and rubbish. If you've read my partner in crime, Jamie McKelvey's uh, Suburban Glamour, Suburban Glamour being uh, 
his book about basically teenagerdom and, and kind of like fairiness. It's a bit like that. Me and Jamie came from quite similar places. So it's like, it's big enough, the stuff there, it's not big enough to have anything actually interesting there. It's like, I don't think a band I ever wanted to see ever played my town. There's no comic shop. There's no role-playing shop. We had to basically go places to get any kind of geek stuff. I didn't really read comics as a teenager because there was no access to them. As a kid, you had access to like the sort of kids' comic. When I was passing through those years, whilst I was still interested in the form, you know, I didn't just didn't have any of it. Biggest memory not in one. I was 16, so it was a hormonal mess, as you might imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it was the year I started going clubbing. Obviously, Nirvana happened that year. That's happened in November. So that happens literally when the comic starts. So at least part of the reason why I chose not in one is it's an interesting liminal state. It's kind of where November was also basically when a, a Nevermind happened. If you're talking about giving birth to whatever the 90s was, as in the end of the Cold War, the change in pop culture, even a game called Vampire, which is Vampire the Masquerade, which is one of the definitive RPGs of the 90s, was released in that 91. So this kind of like when the 80s were officially dead, uh, the 90s kind of rose in that kind of way. That's at least one reason why I chose 91. It's kind of giving birth to a period, if you see what I mean. That makes a lot of sense. When I was 16, it's when I was, being the drinking ages are different in the UK, 16 is when I started being able to go clubbing. There were some clubs that I could sneak into. <laughs> uh, and, you know, disappearing into a fancy world thing. I'm not really just talking about RPGs. I'm talking about the entirety of fantasy life, including books, including loving comics. And basically, my life has been about a retreat from reality in many ways, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I'm, I'm sort of part of Die as me wondering how much it costs me. Did you play uh, RPG games in high school? And what turned you on to them? Steffi, do you want to go first? Because I, I know my answer will be longer than yours. <laughs> and I, just, I, don't make, I don't want to be talking forever. I was a very isolated child. So basically, for me, it was more uh, video games. I was more in, into, like, mostly Final Fantasy, to be honest. I was uh, all the... Legend of Mana, if you remember this one, it was quite ah, old. Right I guy. was really, my love for RPG certainly comes from the, my love from uh, Yoshitaka Amano, who was the designer for Final Fantasy. Yeah, I always had a deep love for his work. Finally, uh, in the end, the only thing I had that would look a bit like RPG when I was young is like uh, getting with some girls and talking about ghosts and pretending they were not there, or the contrary. Basically, I started uh, doing RPGs way later when I was uh, in my 20s and I found a group and they introduced me to the, the RPG thing. That was, that was actually quite funny for a while. In my case, it was one of my major things. Like, I mean, I was, by that page, I was very into pop music as well. I was very into computer games. I mean, I was programming games when I was then. And I loved RPGs. I kind of got into it. I mean, I'm old enough to sort of get Redbox. I think that Redbox being like one of the first mass market versions of D&D. Uh, but my first role-playing system I got when I was 10, which was a game called Middle-Earth Role-Playing, which was a company called Ice. And trust me, Middle-Earth Role-Playing, or MURPS for short, was not a system really designed for 10-year-olds. <laughs> it's it's like people joke about D&D being complicated, but, you know, D&D was kind of lightweight compared to this table-strewn mess. And I remember like this, uh, the Christmas morning when I got it, it was like me and my brother just looked at it. And my brother's like a few years younger than I was as well. And we're like, we have no idea what this is. So we, we look through the table. It's literally endless tables of like numbers. Uh, and like, yeah, I've got no idea how to play this. So we just sort of cut out the cardboard figures and pushed them down the map and kind of occasionally looked up something from the table, which maybe this means something. And it's a great choice. In my old age, I look back at that now and I think, oh, no, no, that was definitely playing an RPG in a very small way. <laughs> As you know, it was us trying to use some kind of mechanic to navigate story. 
what attracted to us i don't know there's a line which is in the playing at the world which is a really good history of the rpg by by john peterson it's enormous you could kill somebody with it he kind of defines rpg by the concept of anything is permitted those people are not always advisable <laughs> anything is permitted and that was kind of the thing as in the idea that it made, it brought the idea of these fantasy wolves i loved into reality in a kind of more tangible way as opposed to just reading a book is something you get lost in the idea of mechanics it kind of takes you away from you a little it takes you out of your control so there's really for me an interesting synthesis between the reality of actually adding a mechanic to it whilst on the other hand having this pure kind of fantasy world and but and the two interacted in really interesting ways but yeah i took it very seriously as you might guess <laughs> <laughs> how do you think rpgs and fantasy had a role in developing as a storyteller for each of you I'll go first on this one because I say, say Stephanie comes later. But for me, it was like it was an interesting test bed. I mean, I wrote fiction before that. I mean, it's like and I haven't played RPGs all my life. It's like I've gamed all my life in different ways. But like what, the actual form the game takes kind of alters depending on what part, part of my life is. Probably the biggest influence, and you see this with people, and it's quite weird. As you speak to RPGs, there's a sort of polymathy approach to RPG designers, at least the ones I like. People who run RPGs tend to learn little bits of a lot of stuff. You know, because like RPGs are omnivorous. They kind of take bits from different books and different cultures and different bits of history and kind of uses them. And like a lot of things which I got interested in, in a more academic and serious historical way, are ideas which I first were introduced to in like a throwaway RPG. So that's kind of the part that it kind of got into the omnivorousness. And the great joy about RPGs, they're also part of the postmodern tradition. So the idea of RPGs is the idea of stories being sacrosanct is fundamentally not there. The idea of an RPG is a story is to be messed with. And you are an you are an active agent in the concept of story. So that's the kind of like encourages to get your hands dirty. So I think that's definitely kind of influenced me as well. How about you, Stephanie? Well, basically, when I was young, like very young, you know, I had um, you wouldn't call them figurines exactly, but I had the masters of the universe, you know, and they had some kind of strange crossover with the Barbie universe because my mother she really wanted me to have Barbies, but I really wanted to have the He-Man. So I was doing the, the, those stories, and then when I grew up, I, I switched to video games, and then starting to do like the kind of trying to get adult thing. And then mm. I met my my group of role players, and I realized that I was actually missing this part of thinning the walls between telling a story and being in a story. This is something that I I, I really needed at that moment, feeling that the story world is very close to being open. I don't know how to say it properly, but um, this is it. And, and that actually helps me a lot when I create a story too. When I draw, it's all about body language. I have to believe in what I draw. Uh, when I draw, I really feel like I'm in the story, like a, a proper part of it. And all this is linked for me. I don't know if that makes sense. The gaming that I see around me here, just to let you know, and I want to get your opinion about this, is there's gaming and Friday Night Magic at a lot of comic shops, and that helps them a lot. It's a place for people to gather and have fun, fellowship, but it's also important for the health of the comic shop because for a lot of them, that's a, a big way they bring in their revenue. They couldn't survive mm. without it. Do you think that the rise of high-quality video game graphics and smartphone game apps like Pokemon Go, that an RPG board game would never take off if it were introduced today, or could it? I can go deep in this, because the interesting thing about RPGs is the classical <coughs> RPG has never been more popular now than it has been at least since the 80s. 
And of course, the irony is that's actually kind of been born of technology. Someone like a streaming service, sort of service, a streaming show like Critical Role, which is basically performance D&D. They were playing uh, MCM, which is a big coin in London recently, and they kind of filled the really big halls. And it was basically like a very polite Beatlemania. They were by far the biggest cues in there. And this is literally people playing D&D and people chewing in it every week to listen and watch. The interesting thing about that is it's demystified D&D and RPGs for many people. As in, like, my wife, for example, uh, the Dan Harmon cast, every week they do a joke D&D game. Well, it's the used to anyway. And that she was listening to that, that kind of, oh, no, that's just what it is. As in kind of, so they got to be an audience. And then my wife you know, said, oh, if you're running a game soon, I'm interested in seeing some more of this art form. And that kind of low level of exposure where people can kind of go, oh, no, it's just people sitting in a room and making stuff up. As opposed to in the 80s, when you sort of saw that, I mean, you see these people in the shops, what are those weird dice? You know, the poly, <laughs> the, you know, the, the fundamental nature of what the hell is, the, you know, the magic weirdness of it, that's not there as much. It's almost the flip of it. And especially because, you know, there's been a big board game revival over the last few years as well. And the kind of the internet age has also kind of made people kind of into the fetishism of real life objects. It's one of those telling things. You would think that why on earth do comics shops still exist? Because you can get it all digitally now. But in fact, the actual digital age makes people much more interested in the totemicism of objects in some ways. And if you're genuinely selling a beautiful, interesting object, which is tangible and gives you a kind of reward above and beyond it, that's something else as well. You know what I mean? So um, it's never quite as simple as you would think. Ah, Stephanie, what's your take on that? I agree with Kieran. Also, I, I really think that people need to get together, especially if you're into comics. Right now I'm working in a, in a co-working space and basically I'm the only one who's got so much of a deep subculture, pop culture uh, in my head. And I always have to explain whatever I'm talking about. And that's funny, but sometimes, uh, once in a while, I like to be with people who know what I'm talking about. And, you know, people need to get together physically too. They, you need to meet people who will laugh at your jokes because they understand <laughs> them. That's part of being human. We're never going to get away from that, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're together now making Die, and you've worked together before. Um, Stephanie, you're collaborating with Karen on this comic book. You illustrated a full issue of Journey to Mystery back when Karen wrote it. And Die is going to be your first ongoing series. You're going to do all the art. You know, colored everything. <laughs> How are you handling the pressure and the deadlines? <laughs> well, uh, difficultly sometimes. She's doing amazingly. I, <laughs> I have to admit, I had a, a period when I, old, um, I realized that it was more than just painting the issue, that I also had to talk with a lot of people and uh, think about, you know, the design and talk to other cover artists and, you know, all the small things you never have to think about when you work uh, for hire, basically. I was like, this is a lot of pressure for me, but no, it's okay. It took me a, a month to find my feet, let's say. I think it's going to be okay now. For like the whole September was a nightmare for me. Karen, speaking of pressure, you're working with six main characters, which is a real challenge for both writers and artists. I think of books like The Avengers, where you have all of these characters you have to give attention to, or uh, Doctor Who, where they'd have too many companions in the TARDIS and one of them has to be in a coma or something, you know? How do you approach giving them all focus so we get to know them better? That's really interesting. As you say, it's like when I'm giving advice to actual comic book writers, I always say, cut your cast. That's my kind of main thing, as in comics is a, a jealous medium in terms of being able to give character space. And it makes things much harder the more you add characters. It's the classic error I see when really very new writers, they put too many characters in. And of course, I'm coming off the back of Wicked Divine, which had 13, 14 lead characters. Uh, so, like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not always good at practicing what I preach. 
but like with Wickdiv, the way it was structured was you had a lead character, Laura, uh, and all the other people, whilst having their own plots, were mainly about their interactions with Laura, as in the kind of they allowed, they allowed you to explore bits of Laura uh, with them as proxies. And with Die, it's a little bit different. As you said, it's like six lead characters. There's a lead character and five very strong supporting ensemble cast. As in, you have, we have a viewpoint character and these other people. So a lot of it is just kind of sitting down and working out, okay, what needs to be delineated? And it's when people see the first issue. It's kind of like about a third of the issue is set in 1991. And the rest of the issue is set in like 2018. So you've got to establish all six of those lead characters. <laughs> uh, as in, what they were like in 1991. And then you've got to establish what they were like in 2018, as in what has changed, what hasn't changed. And you get the irony of like, you know, you've just met these kids and now you see them 25 years later. Who got bald? Who got fat? Who got married? Who didn't? That kind of stuff. And you choose those exact kind of things you choose to show. You know the core of those characters by the end of the issue. And for me, it's always a question of like having them quite well rendered, having them kind of understanding about their axis they exist on. This character is mainly about this, but also this and also this. If a characters all have the same opinion on something, if people have the same opinion for the same reason, they're going to be deleted. I suppose the Wick did where I basically had 13 characters and I kind of, everyone has a strong thing saying what they are. This is like a cast where people have two to three core things they're about. And then it becomes a question of how do you do to delineate it? What I really love about the character is they are very human. You know, uh, you can really grasp them. Like, I really feel like I know them, even mm. if sometimes I don't like them, you know? <laughs> yes, especially, yeah. Yeah. Well, we get a good introduction in the first issue. Everything's set up for us. This is not a trip down memory lane. This is not all warm and fuzzy nostalgia back in 1991 and then jumping to 2018. It's dark. Tell me more about the approach you took to die. If you look at all the books I've ever done, one of the kind of themes is a kind of complicated relationship to the concept of nostalgia. Like the first book I ever did was Rubitania, which is the first phonogram. It was kind of meant to be violently nostalgic, whilst clearly also being about coming to terms with the fact that time has passed and I am now processing how I feel about something in the past, despite always being against that concept dies a bit like that and it's like i don't really believe in nostalgia <laughs> it's like kind of like i think the patina and nostalgia like there's things you can feel sweet about but it's a lie you know like right. <laughs> you know what i mean like to be actual truthful about stuff you have to be honest about stuff and at least part of like the urge of die was looking at like people i've known and loved and making these six new characters but they're kind of all inspired by lots and lots of different sorts of people i've known and i put them together and like you know this is me kind of thinking about geek culture where it kind of got me and like both pros and cons and you know as stephanie said some of these cats are really dislikable at times <laughs> but sometimes they're absolutely adorable and sometimes you kind of like feel really awful for them and that's kind of the realism of it dies like a more complicated book than wick in some ways but at least one of the things ways it's similar people said about wick some people are like, is it meant to be meant to be a parody of celebrity? Or is it meant to be actually a celebration of celebrity? And it's kind of not really. It's kind of meant to be both. The idea that like, any accurate portrait of people includes ups and downs. And that's at least kind of what I think would die. As in like, here's a, I hate saying the word adult, you know, but dies are meant to be a pretty adult book. It doesn't give you easy answers. These are complicated people. And we're trying to do something in a real grown up, mature literary tradition. Whilst also being a, you know, this kick-ass fantasy story. <laughs> <laughs> and so much is from Stephanie because you know uh, Stephanie brings such a maturity to the characters and the world by the how she chooses to present it right Stephanie I do my best there is as much from me in this character that there is from Kieran happening you know uh, we were talking about uh, one of the main characters who's a metalhead and 
Uh, yesterday, I realized that actually the name he's got is literally the name of the guy who inspires him from my real life. You know? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Man. <laughs> you know, it's really literally the guy. I was looking at it and I said, no, this is this, his name. I ne- never realized before, you know. It's just strange that it happens like this. Well, Stephanie, I wanted to ask you about some of the influences that went into making Die. Uh, now, I understand that in some way Van Halen influenced Design of the World and Die. And also your love of those pulp books that you read as a teen. Most of the influence in my art in general come from old school illustrator of or old painters from the expressionism or impressionism movements a while ago, <laughs> or all the illustrators from the 70s, or more recently you have also John Foster, who's a huge huge inspiration for me. There are actually a lot of people, but mostly. I try to do my best with the thing I know uh, and I try to emulate what I love and try to learn and you know it's been a while now that I've been an illustrator and I try to learn my job as much as I could and as as best as I could. Sometimes I know what I'm doing, most of the time I hope to think uh, that I know what I'm doing but sometimes I, I just come with everything I have and try to put all the chaos together. Everyone knows it. Like, my work doesn't look like anything until the moment it really does. Like, it's it just a lot of uh, things happening at the same time, and suddenly it, make, it makes sense. It's absolutely... It's like, you see Stephanie, it's like, stick figure, stick figure, stick figure. Yeah. You turn away for a second. Oh, no, it's, it's an entirely beautifully rendered world. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things like, did I blink? Did I miss a scene? When we finished to get off the podcast, you just stick that painting ash online, the animation. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like she occasionally does live paintings and you see how she works. And it is so much like watching a sculpture at work. It's really very interesting in that way. Mm. Stephanie was saying, it's like there's so much of her in it. She's never really collaborated with a writer like this before. Yeah, so we've really done this level of world building. Close to Jamie works quite often. I just threw stuff at Jamie and he worked out how to execute it. Stephanie kind of, I threw as much as I've ever thrown at Jamie. And Stephanie comes back with a bunch of other stuff and I synthesize it. It's a very much a collaboration. I mean, she mentioned Ash, who's the metalhead. And I would have never made a character a metalhead because I was a metalhead. Don't want to make it that obviously autobiographical. But she was sort of like, you know, we never see in pop culture that sensitive metalhead guy. You, you see the kind of, you know, the villain head kind of metalhead, the Wayne's World, you know, and that's a good archetype. The guy at school who had a load of like paintings on his like art folder and stuff like that. You know what I mean? That kind of guy you don't often see in pop culture. And it's like, oh, no, no, that's perfect. Let's do that. So, yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting collaboration in lots of ways like that. And your other collaborators, well, you've worked with Clayton Cowles before on Letters. And Ryan Hughes did your design of the book. And Chrissy Williams is your editor. I'm curious, Chrissy Williams as the editor. Now, this is Image, so a lot of it is on you to get the book done, promoted, and so forth. How is she helping you with the book? <laughs> well, she's really good at bullying us. <laughs> <laughs> Chrissy was a Wiktiv's editor as well. Uh, so she does all project management. So there's a lot of kind of like making sure people have deadlines and reaching out and a lot of all that kind of organizing stuff. As in kind of like traditionally stuff on previous image books, I've quite often had to do myself and I just haven't got time for. Uh, and the other side of the job, as well as all that, is very much on the script side. She's not my, the first reader. She gives very, very tight readings and we sit and we argue over like individual lines uh, and every stage. I mean, we've just actually got some notes back from a sensitivity reader. So we've just tweaked the comic a little bit, like literally two hours ago. So the one you've read isn't going to be quite the one that goes to press. So we're always kind of making sure it's got to be, especially the first issue, everything's so much high stakes for it. So part of it is the classical editor in terms of the project manager. And the other half is just really being a creative editor. 
and really arguing with choices and like I just you know saying Kieran I have no idea what this means <laughs> you know I really feel like she holds the thing all together you know mm. if you were to make a soundtrack for Die what music would you include so we just talked about how you compile your top 40 songs for the year so you must have some idea would you use music from the 90s what would you use for that I actually thought about it. I, you know, I've been wanting to bring back Guitar Heroes for a while, so definitely something like or maybe Brian May or, you know, like some proper guitar solo. <laughs> but there should be a song around it, but I want a guitar solo. Well, like Wective actually has a playlist which is almost 500, track, 500 tracks long. And I, I do a lot of playlist stuff, a lot of kind of books. With Die, I kind of went a different way. I tried making a playlist a couple of times. I tried a couple of different approaches. One of them was like songs from 1991. Uh, and the other one was kind of just songs that felt thematically connected to Die. And the problem is they were all too pop. I was walking home and I was a really random song by a band called Gowns, who one of them split from uh, EMA is her current work. Uh, and this song, which is just a very weird, fuzzy, bleak record. <laughs> and I was like, this is kind of what Die feels like. But I realized that's actually kind of what I should go for. As in just like these kind of ambient drone rock stuff, you know, that kind of emotional maturity I was talking about. The idea that things are kind of a bit washed out and, and sad. So I put this on a playlist. And then what I've actually done was I've used the Spotify's algorithm to just select stuff. Because like Die is a game about, as I said earlier, about mechanics. So like I've basically just let the algorithm run. I said I seeded one track. And every time it hits this track, I think it should be on the Die playlist. I add it to the playlist. So I'm basically doing this generative process to actually build the soundtrack. So, yeah, on one hand, absolutely the metalhead stuff. You know, there's lots of period stuff you could do. Like, if you're filming it, you definitely would. But the fantasy world, I want the fantasy world to feel like nothing else. So that's kind of like getting increasingly abstract music. Like, you've only seen a little bit in the first issue, but it's not like um, Tarantino soundtrack kind of place, really, I think. You know what I listen while I draw? I listen to Baby Metal and the music of Kimi no Namae, Your Name. I love and Baby it, Metal. They work very well. Baby Metal are a hell of a band. Actually, I was listening to Baby Metal earlier, randomly. I haven't heard of them. Oh, a uh, Japanese metal band with like three uh, girl singers. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. They're awesome. They are pretty awesome. I will check that out for sure. Die number one is going to come out on December 5th. And you have some other things. Karen, we'll start with you. I know that you're working on Star Wars. And honestly, I, I hadn't read it lately. So I went out and picked up one of the issues, the uh, first part of Hope Dies, the first issue of the arc. And I went out and bought more. Really enjoying that. Thank you. And you have uh, Peter Cannon coming up for Dynamite. With Star Wars, it's kind of like Hope Dies is this enormously cataclysmic arc. It kind of brings the rebels down really low. And the kind of the next arc is kind of them on the run. And it kind of takes a different direction. With Peter Cannon from the bottle, I have not written a superhero comic for quite a few years now. Actually, there's some pages in that, actually. So that was my last kind of superhero work. And uh, Nikki from um, Dynamite, so, you know, we were talking about doing something. And I said, actually, Thunderbolt, that sounds fun. So it's me kind of doing this epic scale superhero comic. Like, it's, it's kind of an event scale superhero comic, as in it's really kind of seriously big. But at the same time, oh, no, it's just in one issue. And it's completely, apart from Thunderbolt, all the characters are mine and Casper's. And it's me taking a swing at the genre in the spirit of, like, deconstructionary comics like Planetary or Watchmen or whatever. It's me going, oh, I'm going to have some fun here. As in, <laughs> it's um, it really does kind of go for it. And it's one of the things that I think, I hope people will be delighted with it, as it's kind of um, cheeky is the word I might use. And Stephanie, now I know you're focusing on diet. It's a lot of work for you. But what else do you have in the works? I know you do some occasional children's books covers. What else is going on for you? I haven't done children's books covers for like a very long time, maybe a few years. Uh, maybe more like young adult books once in a while. But uh, this year, maybe I only do, did a couple. 
Uh, I only have uh, one or two covers, you know, waiting for me to work on it. I know I have several to do, but I have deadlines for them, and so I'm not in a rush. It will happen when it will happen. Right now, I'm focusing on that. It's already enough work. Yes. So your plate is full. It's really a lot of work, and I'm not really a fast painter. I'm a pa- like I'm fast for a painter, but for a comic book artist, I'm not that fast. You know what I mean? So for me. I really have to get focused to achieve one page a day. Do you mind if I chip in something? I've just sort of realised that. I've just had a moment of sitting back and thinking, there's something I should have mentioned. The thing about Die is, it's the idea of this RPG that did these things, these kids. But at the same time, it is just kind of a fantasy comic. (laughs) You know, it's all based on kind of a lot of other stuff. But at the same time, I don't think you need to know anything about RPGs to read it in any way. It's kind of like, it's like Narnia or any kind of other secondary world comic. That kind of thing. I always worry, like, talking about the RPG stuff is so fun. I kind of worry that someone's out there thinking i'm not gonna be able to understand this but I, I like to think that people definitely be able to go into it like that oh i would agree no because i don't know a lot about it and i had no problem reading it and enjoyed the story for what it was as a fantasy story so that there's no barrier there at all in a real way like the story's actually i mean we use rpgs as the main sort of focus but it's really about fantasy as in fantasy in the widest both the concept of the imagination but also about the concept of the genre of fantasy i mean like issue three is like this entirely about tolkien it's quite an intense look at tolkien and of course Whilst Tolkien is an enormous influence in the RPG, he's not actually the RPG, <laughs> you know? You know how Planetary used to kind of do stories about how the genre of superheroes came to be? Like, dies a little like that, but with the RPG, as in, we're interested in the elements that went into it. So it's like the Brontes turn up eventually, you know what I mean? And no one would connect the Brontes with the RPG unless, you know, you really kind of know the history. Anyway, I wanted to mention that anyway. Oh, no, that's a very good point. No, people should not feel that, oh, I don't know enough about that to be interested in or enjoy this. Oh, that's not the case. It's, it's not a barrier at all. Like I said, it's uh, it's very accessible. People will enjoy a good fantasy story anytime. Even just a good story. I actually gave the book to some of my co-workers up in my co-working place. And as I mentioned, they know nothing about RPG, pop culture, comic books, and they still enjoyed it. That's excellent. That's the best test, really. You just give it to someone who knows nothing about a topic, whatever it may be. Whatever you've written, whatever you've done, and say, what do you think? Yeah. You follow it? Yeah, with my Star Wars comics, I always say, like, I'm always imagining I would like my mum to be able to enjoy this. Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> as in, like, a Star- I mean, like, kind of, as well as the absolute hardcore fan, you should also have the kind of, Star Wars is big, Star Wars is for everybody. So that kind of, like, you must always remember, some, but my mum should be able to read this and really, like, fancy Harrison Ford, you know? <laughs> well, I have some fun questions to ask all my guests. Karen, I'll start with you. What do you like to do? For rest and relaxation. <laughs> the very concept is beyond my understanding at the moment. It's just me. The last few weeks have been hard work. Uh, what do I like to do? Sleep. It's really telling how my work and my life goes together. Like one of the things after starting work on Die is I started playing RPGs again properly. Like I kind of <laughs> spent a year of, instead of like the big D&D campaign, we've had, we, me and a group of friends, we did um, experimental short RPGs, like one to four sessions. Like we played a game where Night Witches, where we're all... Uh, World War Two women bombers on the Eastern Front, completely all over the place. So I do that. Actually, I've got back into running, which I quite enjoy. And that's mainly it. Between like, RPGs and uh, gaming culture, that's my main hobbies at the moment, which is quite depressing. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Stephanie? Oh, my God. <laughs> that's even worse. <laughs> you know, I, I work so much. Uh, I don't have a lot of time. But when I have time, usually I just travel and see my friends. Like uh, right now, I've been pushing my next travel to Paris, which is not that far away for like four months. Where you know, I have friends I want to see, and when when we get there together, we can have fun. But uh, meanwhile, I'm just working. Well, I got the swimming pool too. It's not that bad, honestly. I want you both to think back 
to a favorite birthday that you had. What was special about that birthday? Was it where you were? Was it who you were with? Why does it stand out in your memory? You know, uh, two years ago, I decided that I was fed up with being born on Christmas. So I decided <laughs> to spend my birthday for the first time on the 24th of June. And I did a picnic with my friends, and that was awesome. It's good. Change it up. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the third time in my whole life that I had a birthday with somebody else than my parents. <laughs> How about you, Karen? Two came to mind. Both were actually surprise birthday parties. Like my 40th, uh, my wife threw a surprise Hobbit theme, the Hobbit going away party. It's all kind of like uh, close for party business. So like, if you know, if you know your Tolkien, the house is just basically a, an enormous Tolkien riff. And that was incredibly touching. I mean, I kind of had a suspicion they, they might be doing something. So that wasn't quite as jaw dropping. But my 21st birthday, I was up in Sheffield visiting a friend. My friend I was with, Simon, said, oh, should we go for a drink here? I said, why? <laughs> And I said, well, you know, uh, Martin might be there. And I was like, okay, whatever. I'm thinking he was insane. Well, and Martin was there. That was amazing. And then also other people I knew were there. And I kind of was like, there was five minutes in. I was just, oh, man, it's great. It's great to see you here. Uh, it's five, four minutes before I realized, oh, wait a sec, it's my birthday and they're all here for me. You know, <laughs> like, it's like that kind of a genuine surprise party just short circuits your brain. And it's incredibly touching because A, it's very nice. But B, it's kind of like, oh, no, people like me. You know, that kind of like all those kind of like, I'm desperately insecure as a human being. <laughs> but they like, all these people to go to this trouble must mean something. <laughs> so that's incredible. I think of that and it's, you know, I generally get choked up. People are very nice sometimes. Now, still thinking back, back to middle school, you know, like 12, 14 years of age, somewhere in there. What posters or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? <laughs> so my, uh, my parents, they put on my walls something like um, wallpapers with some kind of angels. And I remember I painted every single one of them with uh, <laughs> like blue jean jackets or I had crayons, you know, <laughs> I put them with very colorful uh, kind of neon color outfits from the 80s. My mother hated me for years for that. I can't think of anything on my walls when I was 12, 13. Like, this is quite weird. If you go slightly older, I started covering my walls with everything. I was the classic cutting things out the paper kid. But uh, the thing I remember, the thing about maybe 14, I had an Aliens poster, like the Alien from Aliens. Obviously from Alien as well, but specifically it was the Alien from Aliens. And I had that above my bed. Other people had their love object above their bed, whilst I had this xenomorphic killer. (laughs) And that says a lot about me. (laughs) I have a couple of hypothetical questions. The first, if you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only have one book for pleasure, something you wanted to read for fun, what would that one book be? Uh, good Omens. Uh, good book. It's my favorite book. I always have at least two uh, exemplary of them in because I just love to give them to people. You know, it's just my favorite book ever. Yeah, Good Omens is a hell of a, it's like, you know, it's genuinely delightful and charming. I'm so happy that the show looks really exciting and good. Even t- I'm sitting here and I'm going, I cannot think of any book I like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good at the concept of favourite, is the thing. Because my immediate urges, this says a lot about me, is to pick something that's really self-improving. You know what I mean? Like, as in something that's actually a big, serious book I can actually think about. Actually, I was after 21, I lived in America for a year, and I took all these existentialist philosophy books with me, and I was stuck in this bed seat with no car and I had no ability to get anywhere, and I was really depressed. So I couldn't bear to read any of these books. <laughs> and in fact, that's when I got into comics. I actually bought Watchmen on the flight over in this room with no TV, you know, literally no form of entertainment, apart from these existential books and Watchmen. And I read Watchmen about a dozen times. And that's kind of how I got into comics. That's kind of, I obsessed over this book and realized how good it was. 
I guess I'd have to say Watchmen then, I guess. Even though I know it by heart now. I said, I, I, if you Google it, I do a speech about Watchmen online. But yeah, say Watchmen. That'd be good. Now, if a toy company were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? <laughs> For me, it would be my big luggage. I have a very big luggage. For a long time, uh, I didn't have an apartment for a couple of years. So basically, I was just jumping from one country to the other, and everything I owned during those two years had to enter that luggage. It was a big one. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that simplifies life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Honestly, my life was way easier when I didn't possess a lot of things, and I didn't have room for more anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I used to work on PC Gamer magazine. Like, I was on staff, I was eventually deputy editor. And PC Gamer UK had no money for art. Like, we couldn't actually pay for art or anything. But there was internal things the company had that we could use. So to illustrate any of our features, we actually regularly just got dressed up and did photo shoots or whatever. However, for one particular article, and I can't even remember what it was, someone did a render of me as a toy. So it's like an entire box, as in your poseable Kieran Gillen doll. Uh, and like, there's at least five or six jokes, mainly insulting, which of course is the way we did it on PC Gamer. Do you have an example of one of those jokes they made about you? The one that actually sticks in my mind is badly flailing arm that knocks over drinks. As in, <laughs> so you can imagine my arm just going everywhere and spilling, because that's definitely one of the things I did. And it's definitely also pull a, you know, pull a cord and say random pretentious phrases. <laughs> that would be the other thing. So uh, someone with Google and Googled hard enough could probably find that somewhere. Well, you mentioned drinks. So my next question is, what is your beverage of choice? Mojito. <laughs> All right. Mojito is relaxing. So at the end of a con, a nice mojito is always good. But the thing is, mojito is the only thing I can drink that doesn't make me hang over the day after and makes me sleep happy. You know, everything else, I don't get drunk, but I have a hangover on the day after. And I sleep very poorly. But with Morito, I'm just very happy. I normally drink white wine. And I drink that because I've got a beer allergy, so I can't drink beers anymore. But that's not really a choice. So <laughs> uh, my friend, Kid With Knife, who was the guy I based Kid With Knife on, a guy called Dan, his real name is, but Kid With Knife was his nickname. And he, I based the character phonogram around him. So like, when I finish a con and we go to a, a bar, I regularly get his favourite drink in kind of like, I'm thinking of you, Dan, kind of way. <laughs> His favourite drink is a Long Island iced tea. <laughs> He's a helicopter pilot. He's quite a hard ass. And I, I don't believe that Long Island iced teas are normally a drink connected to hard asses. <laughs> uh, but the reason he ordered it is because it's the one with the most alcohol in, as I believe he put it. Uh, so that's, one, that's the drink I have fond memories of, just because it connects with him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Final question. What is the one question that you have not been asked that you would like someone to ask you something people don't know about you that you'd like them to know? And uh, please answer the question. Wow. I have no idea. But on the other hand, I'm always happy when people don't ask me what it is to be a woman in doing comics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's one to avoid. I would probably happily talk about the time I dissected brains for a living. You did. When I was working in a lab, I uh, dissected and homogenized brains as uh, part of my degree. So that was kind of what I did for a year. <laughs> <laughs> when I was an undergraduate for a summer job, I worked at a college actually uh, staining brain specimens and preparing slides. <laughs> so we had something in common. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's like, like It was far too hard work for me. It's like kind of like, this is like real work. I need to go and become a comic writer. And there's a lot of chemicals too. It's oh, yeah, not a great thing to be around. <laughs> 
I did imagine you know, my kind of flailing arm problem. <laughs> you know, that kind of, can you imagine me near radioactive isotopes? That is not a good idea. You can get the image of like, anyone seen my samples? Kieran's drinking the sample or something. Yeah. That's Die coming out on December 5th. And if you tweet about it, the hashtag to use is Die Comic. Yes, because Die is far too uh, <laughs> general. <laughs> Karen and Stephanie, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Thank you. Merci. In honor of my guests this week, Karen and Stephanie, I played out the interview with Baby Metal and their song, Karate. This show I released early the day before Thanksgiving, so if you're driving home, you had a chance to enjoy it, I hope, or during your Thanksgiving Day drive to visit family and friends, hopefully you had a chance to listen to it, or during the long weekend. And speaking of the long weekend, there is also a Black Friday sale at the comic book shop this weekend, Friday, November 23rd through Sunday the 25th. They are located on Marsh Road in Wilmington, Delaware, so if you're in the area, stop by and check out all the deals to be had on this big sale at the end of the year. For more information, you can go to their website, thecomicbookshop.com. That's thecomicbookshop.com. The next edition of Creator Talks will be out on its regularly scheduled day Thursday, and my guests will be Matt Groom and Eduardo Ferrigato to talk about their latest work, Self Made, through Image Comics, also out on December 5th. It is a series about a woman, her God, and their journey across worlds. Please join us. And until such time, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter through at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. Or on Instagram, where I post my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. That's also at Creator Talks Pod. If you have any questions or comments for me and need a little more space to write, you can reach me through contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. The show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, and Alexa devices. If you enjoyed today's interview or any of the interviews you've listened to on Creator Talks, please leave a brief review or rating on iTunes. A link to the iTunes page for the show is in the show notes. Along with more information on links to my guests' books and to Creator Talks' sponsor, The Comic Book Shop. Thank you for spending some time today with me listening to this interview. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you return for more. There is much more in the works. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your loved ones. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time.